turn in your Psalter hymnals to Lord's Day 14 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We will read Lord's Day 14 responsively. Make sure we know um, what the Catechism is saying before we discuss what we think it's saying. It's always a good rule of thumb. Works well with the Bible. You read it before you try to figure out what it says. That's true of the Catechism as well. It is on page 878 of your Psalter hymnals. Just two questions. Questions are easy. The answers are hard. I'll ask the questions. You'll give the answers. Okay, beginning in uh, Lord's Day 14, at question number 35. What does it mean that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a true human nature, so that he might also become David's true descendant, like his brothers in all things except for sin. Question 36. How does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? He is our mediator, and in God's sight, he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. And I think my notes might be more helpful to me if I had them. No, that's not something I learned in grad school. Okay. Uh, this morning, we're looking at the virgin conception of Jesus. We routinely talk about the virgin birth of Jesus, and that, of course, um, uh, is, is not entirely inappropriate. But what we're really talking about is the virgin conception of Jesus. Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb of Mary, of her nature, through the power of the Holy Spirit, while she was still a virgin. And so we begin with the question, what does it mean that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? And I want to just remind us of something that should be obvious, but it's worth reminding ourselves of. We are talking about a great mystery. None of us should imagine that we can fully wrap our minds around what it means for God who created the universe to unite with a true human nature and to be growing inside the mother's womb. None of us should imagine that we really can understand fully what it means for Jesus to be one person in two distinct natures forever. We have nothing to compare him with. right? So we are talking about a great mystery. Nevertheless, the Lord has revealed some things to us and the Catechism helpfully unfolds for us some of these main things that the Lord reveals to us in his word about the virgin conception of Jesus. Uh, let's start with the fact that Jesus himself points to how the Old Testament anticipated this mystery. Right? It's, not, it's not a complete surprise. Um, one time, after silencing the Sadducees, who claimed there is no resurrection from the dead... Um, the Pharisees start asking Jesus' questions, and Jesus answers the question about um, what are the chief uh, laws, right? What, what comes first? Our Lord summarizes the law to the Pharisees by saying, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So there's Jesus successfully answering their questions. And Jesus says, now I'm going to ask you some questions of my own. And he begins with this. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. So Jesus said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Um, Nice little reminder, if it's not important for this particular uh, catechism answer, but Jesus really wants to push this on them. So he doesn't just say David said, that would have been enough, but David speaking in the Spirit. He's pointing to the fact that the Bible is the very words of God. The Holy Spirit is speaking to them, so it's absolutely true. How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Well, the paradox is obvious. In Jewish thought, almost in all cases, not in every case, but in almost all cases, the elder has preeminence over the younger. So how could this descendant of David, born a thousand years or so, after David was king, remembering that David was Israel's great king, the man after God's own heart. Other kings are compared to David as either uh, they walked in the paths of their father David, that's pretty rare, or they they were unlike David in what they did. So David is this great prototypical king, and we understand the Messiah being his son, but how can the Messiah be David's lord? Well, we know the answer. We're Christians, right? But but this question actually answers this. It's because when the Messiah is conceived in Mary's womb, he's not simply uh, conceived of the nature of Mary. He's conceived of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit so that he was, is, and always will be both God and man, two distinct natures in one person. The virgin birth in that sense is absolutely vital for us to grasp. Uh, The answer, of course, comes to us in the opening chapters of Matthew and Luke. Matthew tells us what happened like this. should say, by the way, please notice how explicit the language is. Right? So when people have questions about the virgin birth of Christ, if they're questioning whether or not it took place, they're flatly denying the scriptures. That this is not ambiguous language. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, That's the answer to the question that Jesus was posing to the Pharisees. How can the Messiah, the Christ, also be David's Lord? It's because he's also David's God. Right? That's the answer. Incidentally, this fulfills the oldest prophecy found in the entire Bible. Um, I'm sure you all know this, but why doesn't someone volunteer this? What's, what's the very first prophecy found in the Bible? It is Genesis 3.15. Bob is correct. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And then, of course, it's also he will crush his head, right? Uh, defeat the seed, but also defeat Satan. That is the oldest prophecy in the Bible. And that gets fulfilled precisely because the Messiah is the seed of the woman. Right? It's not simply that God comes and crushes Satan's head. God crushes Satan's head as the God-man. He takes to himself a true human nature of Mary's very nature so that he is fully God, truly God, fully man, truly man, so as the God-man, he would defeat Satan through the cross and resurrection. Does that make sense to everybody? You're all on board with that? It's really actually very, very important. Okay. The Catechism wants to make sure that we grasp that when the second person of the Trinity took to himself a true human nature, that he remained what he always is, the true and eternal God. Um, how do we know that he always remained the true and, and, and eternal God? You know, throughout church history, there have been some errors on this. There have been people that have tried to say um, the human nature and the divine nature are mixed with each other, that in some way they're confused, or that God simply occupied a human shell as it was without a true human soul, right? Let's start with the God part. How do we know that Jesus is fully God, and he's not mixed up in some way, but he's a semi-deified human being, or partly God and partly man? There's a number of ways you could get at this. The church did hammer it out over several centuries, so if you're struggling a little bit, don't be, you know. It, it, it did take work on the church's part to rule out all the various errors. But how do you know this from the Bible? Bob. I and the Father are one. I think that does work. Um, It's probably not the first place I would go to to show that Jesus wasn't uh, somehow partly God. Think about what what it means to say God. When we talk about the biblical God, what are some of his characters? Bob? He was with God and he was God. God. Not God-like, he was God. That's a great biblical answer. Uh, Where I was starting to go with that, though, is one of the characteristics of God, one of his attributes is, he's immutable. Right? So by definition, the Son of God, as God, cannot change because he takes to himself a true human nature. God is immutable in his very nature. And of course, you could also point to the fact that we worship Jesus. It only is right to worship Jesus because he is true God. Very God of very God, begotten, not made. Otherwise, we'd be engaged in idolatry by worshiping something less than that which is fully God. 
There's, there's a lot of ways you can get at this. Um, I should say, if you're not familiar with this, it's an interesting thing to work through. The early church wrestled a great deal about how the two natures of Christ came together. They had to wrestle with that. They also had to wrestle with the mystery of the Trinity. As I mentioned, some have imagined that Jesus was a mixture of human and divine. And some have imagined that Jesus is truly God and that his human body is just a physical shell that the Son of God occupied on earth. That is, some deny that Jesus was truly human. Um, the church eventually formulated a very precise creed. Does anyone know what it is that deals with this issue? Ben. Chalcedon. Council of Chalcedon, 451 A.D. And um, it very helpfully gives a very precise definition. Um, I'm going to read a big chunk of it to you. Uh, I trust you're not just going to all memorize it. If you haven't read this before because it is done with a, a, quite a bit of precision. And then I'm going to draw your attention to four phrases in it that are essential for us to know about Jesus. So here's the creed. We then, following the Holy Fathers, right, it's not something new, all with one consent teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhood and also perfect in manhood truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and body, coessential with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures. Now here's the four phrases I want you to get. Without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Well, as I said, you're probably not going to memorize all that as I'm reading it to you. And you can tell by the very technical nature of it, there's a reason we don't use that as one of our weekly confessions in worship. It, it, the Nicene Creed fits. The Apostles' Creed was actually given, uh, created originally as a baptismal creed. People were getting baptized, they'd recite the Apostles' Creed. Fits with public worship. The technical language um, that Chalcedon had to end up using to safeguard the truths uh, doesn't actually flow that way, like we would use it in a responsive reading or confess it together. But here are the four expressions that are critical for the way that the creed describes the union of Christ's human and divine nature without confusion, right? He, he is fully God, fully man, not, not a mixture, right? Without change, without division, and without separation. So let me make a, a brief comment on that last point, without separation. 
When Jesus dies on the cross, there is a sense, just like with us, there's a temporary separation of the human soul of Christ from his human body. But there's no separation of either from his divine nature. He remains united to the dead body while it's in the ground. And that body is raised again. That is, Jesus doesn't simply appear to be a human being after he's raised from the dead. And I emphasize this because that's been a common misunderstanding in the history of the church, including in our day. Jesus took to himself a true human nature because he had to die for us. But why would he be dealing with something as lowly as a true human nature now? That idea really comes from um, Platonic philosophy that says, you know, matter is not as good as spirit. How do we know that's not true? How do we know that Jesus has a true human nature but he's permanently united with? There's a whole bunch of passages. Yes? Uh, so after the resurrection of the dead, you touch him, Yeah, that's right. So Nate, Nate is pointing out that after Jesus rises from the dead, he does things like eats food. Uh, I, I want to suggest, because of the way it's portrayed to us, that's not primarily because Jesus was hungry. Jesus ate food precisely to show everybody that he was flesh and blood, right? He, a spirit doesn't eat food. Uh, you also can think of um, him talking to Thomas, who regrettably gets the name Doubting Thomas. I saw a great cartoon about this. You know, Peter denies Jesus three times. This, this is a cartoon with Thomas complaining of other disciples. Yeah, Peter gets to deny Jesus three times, and nobody calls him denying Peter. But, but I'm called Doubting Thomas forever, you know? And I wasn't even here. Um, I think the truth is, is if we weren't there, we wouldn't have believed the other disciples either, right? Thomas had seen Jesus crucified and killed. But the next week, our Lord appears not simply to the other disciples, but Thomas is there too. And Jesus says to him, because you know, Thomas had said, look, I'm not going to believe unless I put my hand in his, his, the wounds in his hands or in his side. And Jesus says, touch me. Go ahead and do it. I mean, he doesn't do it. But he says, go ahead and touch me. Put your hands in my wounds. Put your hand in my side and see that I am not a phantom. I am not a spirit. Right? I am the risen Christ. Um, by the way, in modern um, Christianity, if you ever run into this, and when people say modern Christianity, for some reason we always mean non-Orthodox people. Um, you get a book on modern Christians, R.C. Sproul is not in there. You know, B.B. Warfield is not in there. Uh, modern theology means all the people who don't hold the Orthodoxy. In modern theology, there's a lot of people that have tried to play games with resurrection. You know, he, he rose in our hearts. He rose as an attitude. There's a spiritual sense of him being around. That is not what resurrection meant to Jewish people. Resurrection meant bodily resurrection. You can even see this with Jesus talking to Martha about Lazarus. Right? I know that my brother will be raised on the last day. Right? And so uh, when, Jesus, when we talk about Jesus being raised from the dead, we mean bodily. Right now, there is a man... The man Christ Jesus on the throne of the universe. That's an important biblical truth. Right? Uh, part of the reason why it's an important biblical truth is God's plan in the beginning was that human beings would be his image bearers and that we would reflect his character to the world and he gave us dominion. And he restored that dominion in Christ. The man Christ Jesus. Okay. Yes? You asked, how do we know... Uh, matter is not evil. Oh, there's a lot of reasons to know that, but you sure, go ahead. Genesis 131, 
Yeah, Genesis 131, matter is not evil. So we're, we are not Platonists. Although a lot of Platonism in the history of the Western church, and the Eastern church some too. Uh, we are not Platonists. Uh, as Martha points out, Genesis 131. And it was all very good. You, know, you have that repetition about creation throughout Genesis 1. And it was good. And it was good. And it was all very good. I don't think that necessarily needs any further expansion or further illustration. But we just don't want to forget that this is true. Because it's vital. Jesus is both God and man, two distinct natures in one person. What I would like to do is to ask you a practical question about the history of Christian doctrine. And I want to tell you, this can get controversial really fast, because it's been a controversy in the church for, you know, a thousand plus years. Think about that phrase, without confusion. Can you think of any practice in church history, or any segment of Christians in church history, that confuse the two natures? I'm not talking about some peripheral thing. I'm talking about with like central doctrines that are practiced in the church regularly. Hint, hint. No, no, I'm not calling on the seminary students. Yeah, Ray. Luther did not believe in transubstantiation, but that was a very close. That was a very close answer. Actually, I think Luther's view is more defensible uh, than a lot of other views. I'll come back to Luther in a moment. Luther believed, well, Luther would not have said consubstantiation, and actually, if you talk to your conservative Lutheran friends, they tend not to like the term consubstantiation. They say, that's what you rationalistic Calvinists tell us we believe. That's true, isn't it? Uh, So you probably don't want to say that to your your Lutheran friends. Um, But but there is uh, a sense that the Lutheran view, and certainly the Roman Catholic view, does require God to communicate the property of omnipresence to the physical body of Jesus. Because the Lord's Supper is celebrated all over the earth. And if his body is physically in the Lord's Supper, right, not simply spiritually, then his body is no longer finite and located in one place, as you'd expect from a true human being. Right? So, um, Reformed theologians, since the very beginning, have pointed out there's a real problem here with this, and it violates a fundamental creed of the church, the creed of Chalcedon. Now, I want to defend Luther himself just a little bit at this point. Luther said, I don't understand it. That's not a cop-out. I don't understand it, but I believe that's what God's saying, so I believe it. Right? Let God be true and every man a liar. That is not a crazy position. And many of your, your Lutheran brothers and sisters in Christ are in that same boat. And what they accuse us Calvinists of is being rationalists, right? Because we're, we're going, well, it doesn't make sense to me. And they're going, well, yeah, but God's a lot bigger than you are. Makes sense to God. Well, I am a Calvinist. I, I think the Reformed are correct about this, that there's a real problem in terms of how it impacts the, the doctrine of Jesus' two natures not being confused. Uh, but I want to encourage you, as I encourage my own heart, uh, let's not be judgmental toward our brothers and sisters who see things differently, right? Um, they are still our brothers and sisters. We're going to be celebrating with them forever. Uh, any other doctrines what you can think of where there's a confusion or a mixture? Um, uh-oh. 
I can see now there's some people here. I see them taking notes. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get a note going to Presbytery about that one. Um, that's okay. If I'm brought up on charges of being too charitable toward my brothers and sisters outside the Reformed faith, I can live with that one. Um, any other places where you see these, this show up about uh, a confusion or a mixture of um, the attributes, I mean, of the, of the two natures of uh, Jesus Christ? Peter. Um, in Hebrews, it refers to Jesus being made lower than the angels for a time. Yes. How would you describe that? Okay, so the question is, uh, Hebrews describes Jesus as being made lower than the angels for a time. What's, what's the point there? And that is, although Jesus is truly God, and remember when we get in the, um, uh, Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, the angels are sent to minister to him, right? Um, both as as man and God, that for a period of time, Jesus took the lowly position. And although he's, this this is one of those mysteries that's very hard to get, although Jesus, in his human life, was fully God and fully man, he did not communicate the attributes of his divinity or his omniscience to his human nature. That's why we see Jesus, for example, not knowing things. Not knowing something is not a sin problem. So Jesus gave up the prerogatives of deity and took the lowly position. So you get this with Paul in, in um, Philippians chapter 2, right? He humbled himself by taking to himself a true human nature. He humbled himself by being born in a lowly condition. He humbled himself further by allowing himself to be scourged and beaten and so on. He humbled himself to the point of death, even the death on the cross, wherefore God has highly exalted him. So I don't think it means in any way but the angels had a more exalted nature than Christ. I think that would just be wrong. I think what it's saying is, is that Christ chose for a time, the Son of God, becoming Christ, chose for a time to take the lowly position because that was necessary to redeem us. Does that work for you? Oh, we got a yes. Okay. Um, it's always good. Got to listen to my elders. Peter's now the only elder elder I have. Um, he looks younger. He's, he's a year older than I am. So old. So old. I look older. Okay, um, let's get back to the, to the question. Um, we've already talked about this a number of times, but could someone remind us why it is necessary for Jesus to be both truly God and truly man in order to be our Savior? Because that's really at the heart of this, Right? What's your benefit? Why does Jesus have to be fully God and fully man, truly God and truly man, in order to save you? Michael. You know, fully God can be sinless, but he can be fully man die. That's a really good guess. Fully God to be sinless, truly man, in order that he could die. Second part's true, certainly right. There is a problem with that. Do you have to be God to be sinless? Well, Adam and Eve were sinless, and you know what? When you're glorified, you're going to be sinless forever, right? So human beings can be without sin, just because none of us are, right? Human beings, there's nothing in principle. Human beings can be without sin. And Jesus, of course, was sinless as a human being. I just have a Bible verse. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.5, there was one God and there was one mediator, two God and man, and man, Christ Jesus. 
Yeah, so to be a mediator, and of course that's what the catechism is going toward, and that's a great scripture text to go to, but I'm asking for the theology behind that. Um, why is it necessary? By the way, a very important book in uh, church history, uh, written by Anselm, Cur Deus Homo, Why the God-Man, answers this question. He needed to be able to bear the weight of the God. Yeah, Jen, thank you. That, that's really the heart of the answer. He needed to be God to be able to bear the wrath of God against the sins of everyone who would ever be redeemed. As I've often pointed out, if God had simply created another Adam, a sinless human being, and sustained that person in sinlessness all the days of their life, you have two huge problems. First of all, it wouldn't teach you that God loved you if that person died for you. Right? God wouldn't be showing his love for you. That man might be showing his love for you, but not God. It's because God endures this. But secondly, the most that person could do is die for one other person and then remain under the power of death forever. Because the wages of sin is not dying. The wages of sin is death. But because Jesus is both fully God and fully man, the power of his deity allows him to bear the weight not simply of one sinner, but of all the sinners who ever be saved. And on the basis of the power of an indestructible life to be raised from the dead. Right. That, that's why that's so important. Um, I know that I mentioned that almost in passing, but that, that's one of the most important things you'll ever consider uh, about the uh, incarnation of Jesus. It's necessary for us to be saved that Jesus be both fully God and fully man. Although back to the question, uh, the answer that uh, Allison gave, which, which also hits that, um, our regular um, having Jesus as our regular mediator also fits with that. Hebrews makes the point that because Jesus walked in our shoes, as it were, he understands our weakness. Now, I do want to say God always understood. Just a second. God always understood. He's God. But we understand that God understood. Right? And that's actually really important for us. Allison. You both got me thinking every time I look at the community coming each week, right? I keep thinking that's a high cost. Blood. 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 He had to be God, so only God could have warned us. Think about it. Mm-hmm. You know? It's extraordinary. Well, I'll give you an illustration I've used before, but you know I'm old, so I retell all my stories. Um, Yeah, I should have said, yes, you do, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave that one out. <laughs> okay, so Elder Bacon is smarter than I am. I, I retain fewer stories. I have to keep retelling them. Uh, this illustration comes from the Iliad. Uh, if you've ever read the Iliad, it's one of the great works of Western civilization. It's a pretty bloody work. You know, it's about a war, the Trojan War. But in the story of the Iliad, you have this great Greek warrior who refuses to go into battle because his honor has been harmed. Right? And so the war is dragging on and on and on for 10 years. But then his friend, um, Patroclus? What is it? Patroclus? Patrocles? Okay, we're, we're very close. Um, his friend gets killed in battle and it throws, um, it throws him into a rage. And so he goes out and like nobody can stop him. He's like the ultimate warrior. And there's the prince of Troy looking down from the walls of the city, and he realizes, we are going to lose this battle. There's no hope for us. 
but it's my job, it's my duty, it's my honor to go out and fight this man. And he gets killed. And this warrior, he's really just a war machine. He's pretty brutal. He straps into his chariot. He's circling the city with him. You know, it, it's humiliating, and that's the whole point. And then the king looks out. And the king is seeing his own son being humiliated like that. It breaks his heart. And of course he realizes he's going to lose his city as well. And so that night he slips out, the king slips out, and he goes into the tent, and he gets down on his knees, and he grabs this man's hands, and he kisses him. And he says, I have done what no man on earth has ever done. I have kissed the hand of the man who slayed my son. And it's so moving that he actually gives him the body of his son back. You can't even imagine that. I have kissed the hand of the man who slayed my son. Well, one thing's certain, if Priam had the power to win the war, he would not have kissed his hand. He would have slaughtered every single Greek soldier to avenge his son. And then we come to God. God, who has absolutely all power, sends his son into this world to die for you. While you were still his enemy, he died for you. That's a staggering thing. I really hope you'll remember that. Every time you come to the Lord's Supper, it should never become nonchalant. Yes, God does bid us to come that we be fed. He bids us to come out of love. But what he has done for us is beyond our wildest imaginations. Well, I'm going to give you another hard question. Since Jesus, as to his human nature, had to be like us in every way except for sin, why was it okay for Jesus to be conceived of Mary when if he had been conceived of Adam, he would have inherited Adam's sin nature? Well, put it to Joseph, right? We're saying he has to be conceived of God, not of Joseph, to protect his sinless nature, right? Because everyone else, everyone born of Adam by lineal descent, It's conceived in sin. Why is it okay for Jesus to be conceived of Mary and still be without sin? I did mention this is a hard question, didn't I? Ben. Because women don't have a sinful nature. (laughs) Wow. I want to say, looking at the women in this church, that's almost plausible. But the Bible tells us Else, uh, another answer to that question. Well, the Catholics teach something that's outside of the Bible on this. They teach that Mary was purged of sin by the Holy Spirit in her own conception. By the way, if you ever see, um, this could be confusing to Protestants, if you see a, um, a church to the Immaculate Conception or something, you might think they're talking about Jesus. They're actually talking about Mary. They believe that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, who would have been conceived in sin, but was completely purged from sin and preserved from sin her entire life. Turns out Mary was also sinless. This is why you get some Roman Catholics talking about Mary being a co-redemptrix with Christ. Um, but that's unbiblical. It also creates an enormous problem, because if that's necessary, then you've got to go to Mary's mother and Mary's mother and Mary's mother and Mary's mother. Also Mary's father, they leave that out, you know. Um, and you end up having everyone has to be sinless back to Adam, and it turns out that's actually not what happened. Okay, so 
why is it okay for Mary, for Jesus to be born of Mary, when he's not physically born of Joseph? Because that would have been a problem. Allison. Seed of the woman. Seed of the woman. That's actually very important. You're avoiding the seed of the man. Well, no, so seed of the woman here just means born of a woman. So anybody could have been seed of the woman with both a, with a, with a, hus- um, a, a human husband. That would have been possible. There was no human, there was no male seed involved in her, in Jesus' conception. Yeah, but my question is, is Mary's a sinner and Joseph's a sinner. If Jesus is born of Mary's nature, why isn't he conceived in sin? Because he's like us in every way except for sin. By the way, it doesn't say except for sinning, except for sin. He does not have a sin nature, just like Adam and Eve did not have sin natures before the fall. Yes, because Mary was not represented in Yeah, so now I think we're getting there. Now keep in mind we're in a, we're in a mystery, but it turns out that there is such a thing as federal headship. It's taught all throughout the Bible. In our day, we try to sweep that under the rug, but one of the things it means is the guilt of sin passes through the men. So all you women, you can say, it's my husband's fault. Um, yeah, the guilt of sin passes through the men. And so um, it's not a legal problem the way God has structured humanity that Jesus would get his nature from Mary, right, even though she was a sinner. Uh, you could, there's a lot more about that because, as I say, this is a mystery, but I do throw out hard problems for you sometimes to at least to ponder. And if you come to a different answer, I'm okay with that. Um, All this leads to a very practical question. Is it necessary to believe in the virgin birth of Jesus in order to be saved? And we are at one minute to go. If it's necessary, it is necessary for Jesus to be born of a virgin for you to be saved. Is it necessary to believe in the virgin birth of Jesus in order to be saved? No and yes, I like that answer. Sick at none. Allison, how does that work? No, because uh, you may not simply understand. The mm-hmm. important thing you need to know is, is about Christ. But once you learn, if you deny, then you're in the, then you're putting your, your word and understanding about God. Yeah. So, Allison's point of yes, yes and no is exactly right. Uh, keep in mind that the overwhelming majority of saints from the Old Testament had no idea that Jesus was born of a virgin. I know Isaiah says that the, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and stuff, but you just be realistic. They didn't really know that, right? They didn't, they didn't grasp how it, it played out. I trust that the thief on the cross that was saved, uh, if you had said, you know, how was Jesus conceived? He'd go, I have no idea. What are you talking about? I do know he's my savior, right? So knowing that Jesus is born of a virgin is not necessary for salvation. Or as I like to say, uh, the fact that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, means it's not based on getting a sufficiently high score on a theology exam. Yet, Allison's second point is really important. The Bible does explicitly teach that Jesus was born of a virgin. If you know that and deny that, what you're declaring is, I don't believe God. That is, you're an unbeliever. The, the, by the way, that jump, that jump to unbeliever is not a weird jump. I've had conversations with people um, at Yale, uh, when I've been there over the summers about this sometimes, because they're like, well, I believe. And I'm like, that's not what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is you believe everything God reveals. And um, they want to make faith you can pick and choose. But if God has revealed himself, as our confession clearly says, uh, by faith we believe everything God has revealed in principle. We don't necessarily understand it yet. But we believe in principle we believe it, because God has revealed it. And so... 
this has a real impact of how you think about the early part of the 20th century uh, in the West, where huge swaths of elders and ministers would say things like, well, I don't believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. I mean, we know how kids are conceived, right? And people were treating that like it's no big deal. Because, you know, it's not developed all throughout the Bible. Paul never mentions the virgin birth. He says Jesus was born of a woman, um, born under the law, right? So you go, well, I don't believe in the virgin birth, but I believe everything Paul taught, right? Isn't that faith? And the answer is, no, it's not. They were unbelievers. That's just by definition. Now, keep in mind, people can be confused. So I'm picking on ministers because they should be educated enough. They know what the Bible actually says, and they are choosing to say, I am not going to go with what the Bible says. Uh, Don't rush out to your neighbor who just gave his life to Christ and go, ah, I don't think you're a believer because you're confused about this, right? That, that's not the point. But for ministers, it's a real problem. Ray? I'm just going to add, you know, the Bible specifically makes it clear that Joseph did not know Mary. Yeah, it's, as Ray points out, it's super clear. The word parthenos means virgin. By the way, that's the whole point of the Parthenon in, in, in Greece, right? It was the idea that Athena was a virgin. That was part of their thing. That's why it's called the Parthenon. Parthenos means virgin in Greek. It's not ambiguous. It's never applied to a young unmarried woman. And second, we're told explicitly, Joseph did not know her. Right? So it's, it's not ambiguous. And the question is, is, if you don't believe what God is saying, that makes you an unbeliever. Even until after he was born. Even until after he was born. So there was no tainting. No tainting. That's the point. Um, of course, you know, in the history of the church, there's been a slice of people that say, and even after that, Right? And the brothers and sisters are actually cousins. But we don't have time to go down that road today. It seems implausible to me, but we're going to stop here. Uh, John, would you pray?